The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. I've said here before that the writing of the poem, the writing of the novel, the work on the painting, those are the easy things. The harder things, the more difficult things, is figuring out how to live your life when you are not doing that great creative thing that you believe you were put here to do. How does that happen? How does a poet suddenly emerge into the world? How is it possible that in a person's mid-forties, they come out with two lines of poetry that says this, The beauty of things was born before eyes and sufficient to itself. The heartbreaking beauty will remain when there is no heart to break for it. And I'll read that again. The beauty of things was born before eyes and sufficient to itself. The heartbreaking beauty will remain when there is no heart to break for it. These are the words of Robinson Jeffers from a poem called Credo from, I think, about the time in the early 30s that he was so famous that he appeared on the cover of Time magazine. How does a poet who ends up appearing on the cover of Time magazine still end up writing poetry that suggests this, that the important things are already sufficient to themselves and they don't need to be seen, and that they will remain long after they could possibly break anyone's heart. It's worth looking at how Jeffers got here, and then to spend the next 45 minutes or so reading 10 of his poems. He lived from 1887 to 1962. He was born near Pittsburgh, and to very well-educated parents. Uh, his father was a professor of Old Testament literature and also a preacher. Jeffers knew Latin and Greek by the age of 10. He was sent to many boarding schools in Europe and later went to the University of Pittsburgh and after that to Occidental College in Los Angeles. While he was there, at uh, not, not at Occidental, but at the University of Southern California, he met a woman named Una Call Custer, who was married at the time, but she and Jeffers began an affair that wasn't discovered until, I believe, uh, 1912, when her husband divorced her and she and Jeffers uh, were able to marry. Uh, Jeffers enrolled in medical school at one point, uh, but withdrew to, to study forestry at the University of Washington. And after he and Una Call Custer were able to marry, they moved up to Carmel, California, and that is where they stayed for the rest of their lives. You can imagine that someone with the education that, and the parents that Jeffers had, that maybe he was meant for the clergy or for the academy, for medical, uh, to be a doctor or maybe a lawyer, but something turns, and he goes to Carmel, California, and ends up, with the help of others, uh, building a house, building two towers, I believe, and becoming a poet. He, he starts out writing more traditional rhyme and meter poetry, but ends up, like Walt Whitman in his mid-30s, somehow becoming seized with something quite else altogether. And from the 1920s onwards, he is immensely prolific and soon finds 
critical and popular success. And I heard it said somewhere, and I think that it is true, that American poetry is sort of best represented by Walt Whitman on the East Coast, Robinson Jeffers on the West Coast, but also, I would add in here, um, if anyone lived in a tower by themselves, I would also add Emily Dickinson to the list as well. And there are important things about these three poets to say. All of them, I think, wrote too many poems, and all of them are best served by small collections, small selected editions of their best poems. And when you look at them in their best 10, 20, or 30 poems, they seem to be the best, some of the best poetry, perhaps the best poetry ever written in America. And I know that most people would not put Jeffers in this camp. Um, they would maybe would add Wallace Stevens or someone like Robert Frost. But it strikes me that most of those poets, as good as they are, and Stevens and uh, Robert Frost are certainly great, they still are basically doing what I think Wordsworth uh, did much better. Uh, Whitman, Dickinson, and Jeffers seem to me to be something uh, that has no precedent and that is something that America can offer in its poetry to the world. Now, Jeffers himself has been called a pessimistic poet, an environmental poet, and a California poet. But I think that these three things are all accidents, and labeling him as any of these uh, limits him. It limits his real achievement. It's important for poets out there, young poets especially, to think about the details of Jeffers' life that I just mentioned, and the trajectory and the paths that were laid out for him for study and for a professional life and a, quote, honorable life, perhaps with uh, perhaps not running off with someone else's wife and getting married to her, um, and instead poetry. This is somehow, this is just something that happens. And also, like Whitman and Dickinson, uh, and even though Jeffers did travel, there are poems of him uh, after he travels to Britain and Ireland, I believe, and I believe he spent a good deal of time in the American Southwest as well. But like Whitman and Dickinson, people seem to come to Jeffers. They visited him. They would go on pilgrimage to him. Dickinson, of course, rarely left her room, so people had to come to her if uh, they wanted to see her at all. And even though Whitman had his career in the Civil War and had to make money with jobs, by the end of his life, he too was more someone that people visited. He was a sort of stationary mind, a stationary body that uh, satellites would cohere around and followers would come and visit him. Um, and I think that it is important to put Jeffers in the same camp as these two because he clearly isn't seen in that light anymore. After he died, and actually probably before he died, his reputation began to slip. And this is perhaps uh, the result of having written too much. It's hard to get your perspective on what someone has achieved if you are handed a few thousand or maybe two thousand pages of poetry. And in the other, in the other sense, I've seen it said that New Criticism did not appreciate how how simply, how directly Jeffers was able to write his poetry. And he fell out of favor, or he became a sort of niche interest as an environmental poet, as a California poet, as merely a grouchy prophet on the West Coast who was a pessimist. And what I want to do here is just read what seemed to me ten representative poems, ten of my favorite poems of his, to interest those who perhaps have never heard of Jeffers, those who have heard of him but maybe dismissed him in the past, um, or those who would just like to hear what he has to say, 
but don't feel like going through those volumes and volumes of poetry. And I think it's especially true at a time like now when we are only allowed, we seem to only be allowed to admire someone who we agree with. It's important to read someone like Jeffers, whose power is such that we don't need to agree with his pessimism, with his philosophy of inhumanism, his belief that humanity is sort of a disease on the earth. You don't need to agree with that to be moved by it. And I find myself over and over again not only strongly disagreeing with his conclusions about the world, his conclusions about religion and God, but I am just as strongly moved by his poetry as I am by very few others. And with that, let's get to his poetry. The first poem I'm going to read of his is called The Excesses of God, and I find it here. And this comes from that first collection, Tamar and Other Poems. The Excesses of God. Is it not by his high superfluousness we know our God? For to equal a need is natural, animal, mineral. But to fling rainbows over the rain and beauty above the moon and secret rainbows on the domes of deep seashells and make the necessary embrace of breeding beautiful also as fire. Not even the weeds to multiply without blossom, nor the birds without music. There is the great humanness at the heart of things, the extravagant kindness, the fountain humanity can understand, and would flow likewise if power and desire were perch mates. Now it will be surprising to you at the end of this episode to hear in his first poem to be speaking positively about quote humanness, a great humanness at the heart of things. You'll see what I mean in a moment. This is another poem from that same collection and this is called this is called Point Joe. Point Joe. Point Joe has teeth and has torn ships. It has fierce and solitary beauty. Walk there all day. You shall see nothing that will not make part of a poem. I saw the spars and planks of shipwreck on the rocks, and beyond the desolate sea meadows rose the warped, wind-bitten van of the pines, a fog bank vaulted forest and all. The flat sea meadows at that time of year were plated golden with the low flower called footsteps of the spring. Millions of flowerets, whose light suffused upward into the fog flooded its vault. We wandered through a weird country where the light beat up from earthward and was golden. One other moved there, an old Chinaman gathering seaweed from the sea rocks. He brought it in his basket and spread it flat to dry on the edge of the meadow. Permanent things are what is needful in a poem, things temporally of great dimension, things continually renewed or always present. Grass that is made each year equals the mountains in her past and future fashionable and momentary things we need not see nor speak of. Man gleaning food between the solemn presences of land and ocean, on shores where better men have shipwrecked, under fog and among flowers, equals the mountains in his past and future. That glow from the earth was only a trick of nature's. One must forgive nature a thousand graceful subtleties. And I love that poem. I love it also because it begins to show where some might see Jeffers' weakness or just the prophetic bent that he had to take, that permanent things are what is needful in a poem. Um, he had to come around at some point to believe that if we just 
sort of wiggled the system around a bit and rearranged things, everything would be solved. Uh, his later conclusion of uh, what would solve the world's problems, his philosophy in, of inhumanism, will become very clear in a moment. This is a poem called Hooded Night, and uh, these next these next two poems come from the book Dear Judas, written 1928 to 1929. This is Hooded Night. At night, toward dawn, all the lights of the shore have died, and a wind moves, moves in the dark, the sleeping power of the ocean, no more beast-like than man-like, not to be compared, itself and itself. Its breath blown shoreward huddles the world with a fog. No stars dance in heaven, no ship's light glances. I see the heavy granite bodies of the rocks of the headland that were ancient here before Egypt had pyramids. Bulk on the gray of the sky and beyond them the jets of young trees I planted the year of the Versailles peace. But here is the final, unridiculous peace. Before the first man here were the stones, the ocean, the cypresses, and the pallid region and the stone-rough dome of fog where the moon falls in the west. Here is reality. The other is a spectral episode. After the inquisitive animal's amusements are quiet, the dark glory. And here we begin to get a hint of it, that here is reality, this place that was uh, here before the first man, the stones, the ocean, the cypresses, the dark glory becomes the, uh, the obsession with Jeffers. And I think um, it's worth saying that he is one of those poets, and I think Wallace Stevens is another major poet uh, that we can say the same thing of. They seem to have found a voice and never really developed beyond it. Um, if you have a chance, if you're wondering where to look for, to read more of Robinson Jeffers' poems, um, Tim Hunt has uh, edited the the large edition, the collected poems of Robinson Jeffers, which I think is five volumes at this point, from Stanford University Press. Volumes one through three take up all of the poetry that his reputation is based on. Uh, the fourth volume takes up uh, all of those earlier collections of more traditional poetry. Um, and I believe the fifth one collects some of his essays and stray bits of things here and there. But I don't think you need to read through all of it. You could do worse things than take out a few months and read through all of it. But I think even this half hour will do enough to give you a sense of what he was getting at. He basically had one or two or three, maybe four or five things to say, and he found many, many different wonderful, beautiful, and dark, glorious ways of saying it, you might say. Actually, what I was going to do here, it's worth hearing from Jeffers himself, not from me, talking about his poetry. This is from an essay called Poetry, Gongorism, and a Thousand Years. Never mind the title of the essay. Um, I won't get into that part of it. But this is what he has to say in general about poetry. He says, Poetry is less bound by time and circumstance than any other of the arts. It does not need tangible materials. Good poetry comes almost directly from a man's mind and senses and bloodstream. And no one can predict the man. It does not need a school nor an immediate tradition. And it does not need, though Whitman said so, great audiences too. How much of an audience, after all, did Keats have in his lifetime? Keats had his own mind, you might say, which was one hell of an audience. Uh, the present is a time of high civilization rapidly declining, Jeffers says. It is not a propitious period for any of the arts. Men's minds are a little discouraged and are too much occupied 
with meeting each day's distractions or catastrophe. Yet there is no final reason why great poetry should not be written by someone even today, even in 2022 as well. Whether its greatness would be recognized is another question, for greatness is strange, unexpected, and sometimes repellent, but probably it would be recognized in time. What seems to me certain is, the, is that this hypothetical great poet would break sharply away from the directions that, the, that are fashionable in contemporary poetic literature in 1948. He would understand that Rimbaud was a young man of startling genius, but not to be imitated, and that The Wasteland, though one of the finest poems of this century, and surely the most influential, nevertheless marks the close of a literary dynasty, not the beginning. Aside from these instances, and to put the matter more fundamentally, I believe that our man or woman would turn away from the self-conscious and naive learnedness, the undergraduate irony, the unnatural metaphors, the hiatuses, and the labored obscurity that are too prevalent in contemporary verse. His poetry would be natural and direct. He would have something new and important to say, and just for that reason he would wish to say it clearly. And I do not think that he would give much attention to its merely superficial aspects, the neon lights and toothpaste advertising of this urban civilization, and the momentary popular imbecilities. These things change every year and presently change out of recognition. But great poetry is pointed at the future. Its author, whether consciously or not, intends to be understood a thousand years from now. I love that. Uh, its author, whether consciously or not, intends to be understood a thousand years from now. Therefore, he chooses the more permanent aspect of things, the subjects that will remain valid. And therefore, he would distrust the fashionable, poetic dialect of his time, but the more so if it is studiously quaint and difficult. For if a poem has to be explained and diagrammed, even for contemporary readers, what will the future make of it? Indeed, uh, later on in this essay he says, I write verses myself, but I have no sympathy with the notion that the world owes a duty to poetry or any other art. Poetry is not a civilizer, rather the reverse, for great poetry appeals to the most primitive instincts. It is not necessarily a moralizer, it does not necessarily improve one's character. It does not even teach good manners. It is a beautiful work of nature, like an eagle or a high sunrise. You owe it no duty. If you like it, listen to it. If not, let it alone. And he ends the essay this way. Yet our poet must feel, in his own mind I mean, the stimulation of some worthy audience. He will look, of course, to the future. What do I care about the present? Charles Lamb exclaimed. I write for antiquity. But our man, Jeffers says, our man will reverse that. It may seem unlikely that he will have readers a thousand years from now, but it is not impossible if he is really a great poet. And these are the audience whom he will habitually address. If the present time overhears him and listens to, all the better. But let him not be distracted by the present. His business is with the future. This is, this is not pleasantry. It is practical advice. Here is advice from Robinson Jeffers. For thus his work will be sifted of what is transient and crumbling, the chaff of time and the stuff that requires footnotes. Permanent things, or things forever renewed, like the grass and human passions, are the material for poetry. And whoever speaks across the gap of a thousand years will understand that he has to speak of permanent things, and rather clearly too, or who would hear him? But, but, a young man cries, what good will it do me to imagine myself remembered after death? If I am to have fame and an audience, I want them now, while I can feel them. 
Well, Jeffers says, it seems to me that the young man speaks in ignorance. To be peered at and interviewed, to be pursued by autograph hunters and inquiring admirers, would surely be a sad nuisance. And it is destructive, too, if you take it seriously. It wastes your energy into self-consciousness. It destroys spontaneity and soils the springs of the mind. Whereas posthumous reputation could do you no harm at all, and is really the only kind worth considering. Now I think, especially if I imagine myself at 20 years old, finding this podcast and hearing that, that's as important to hear, at least for the imagined audience I have for this podcast, that's at least as important to hear as the poetry itself. So let's get back to the poetry, though. This is a poem called New Mexican Mountain from the book Thurso's Landing, written in 1930 and 1931. It says this, I watch the Indians dancing to help the young corn at Taos Pueblo. The old men squat in a ring and make the song. The young women with fat bare arms and a few shame-faced young men shuffle the dance. The lean-muscled young men are naked to the narrow loins, their breasts and backs daubed with white clay. Two eagle feathers plume the black heads. They dance with reluctance. They are growing civilized. The old men persuade them. Only the drum is confident. It thinks the world has not changed. The beating heart, the simplest of rhythms, it thinks the world has not changed at all. It is only a dreamer, a brainless heart. The drum has no eyes. These tourists have eyes. The hundred watching the dance, white Americans, hungrily too, with reverence, not laughter. Pilgrims from civilization, anxiously seeking beauty, religion, poetry, pilgrims from the vacuum, people from cities, anxious to be human again. Poor show how they suck you empty. The Indians are emptied, and certainly there was never religion enough, nor beauty, nor poetry here, to fill Americans. Only the drum is confident. It thinks the world has not changed. Apparently only myself and the strong tribal drum and the rock head of the Taos Mountains remember that civilization is a transient sickness. And there we have it. That is the tone that will, will take us to uh, the end of this episode, I think. Civilization is a transient sickness. Uh, pilgrims from civilization, people from cities, anxious to be human again. All of this is immensely modern stuff. What he was saying just now in that essay from 1948 sounds like it could just as well be written now uh, as a way to convince poets not to be on social media and not to be uh, out there uh, selling themselves. This poem could very easily be written now, um, although I doubt anybody would be able to write it as well as Jeffers did. Let's see, this next poem is called, is called Nova, and this comes from his book Such Counsels You Gave Me from 1935 written between 1935 and 1938. This is what Nova has to say. That Nova was a moderate star, like our good sun. It stored, no doubt, a little more than it spent, of heat and energy, until the increasing tension came to the trigger point of a new chemistry. Then what was already flaming found a new manner of flaming ten thousandfold more brightly for a brief time. What was a pinpoint fleck on a sensitive plate at the great telescope's eyepiece now shouts down the steep night to the naked eye, a nine-day superstar? 
It is likely our moderate father, the sun, will sometime put off his nature for a similar glory. The earth would share it. These tall green trees would become a moment's torches and vanish. The oceans would explode into invisible steam. The ships and the great whales fall through them like flaming meteors into the empty abysm. The six-mile hollows of the Pacific seabed might smoke for a moment, and then the earth would be like the pale, proud moon. Nothing but vitrified sand and rock would be left on earth. This is a probable death passion for the sun's planets. We have no knowledge to assure us it may not happen at any moment of time. Meanwhile, the sun shines wisely and warm. Trees flutter green in the wind. Girls take their clothes off to bathe in the cold ocean or to hunt love. They stand laughing in the white foam. They have beautiful shoulders and thighs. They are beautiful animals. All life is beautiful. We cannot be sure of life for one moment. We can, by force of self-discipline, by many refusals and a few assertions, in the teeth of fortune, assure ourselves freedom and integrity in the life or integrity in death. Freedom and integrity in life or integrity in death. And we know that the enormous, invulnerable beauty of things is the face of God. To live gladly in its presence and die without grief or fear, knowing it survives us. And that is going from uh, astronomical observation to apocalypse to beautiful women on the beach to the enormous and vulnerable beauty of things being the face of God. I can see why some people might not like this kind of poetry, because it does preach in a way. Uh, Jeffers would have been exposed to preaching, and uh, if you have to listen to preachers, Jeffers would be one that I would listen to. Um, I should also say that at least in Jeffers' mind, one of his greatest achievements were the uh, long narrative poems that uh, many of his collections uh, were sort of the central tapestry for. He would have a long poem, and then there would be shorter lyrics before and after it. For my mind, none of those longer poems really work nearly as well. None of them really do uh, the way the short lyrics do. And... Um, I wonder how sad he would be to, to hear someone say that, because it seems that that is what he wanted to base his reputation on. But for my mind, it is these short poems that do it. But as I've just said that, here I go um, reading. This is the only time I'll read an excerpt from a poem, not an entire poem. But this is too good to pass up. This is from a poem called Hungerfield. And this was written... Uh, after the death of his wife, Una. And I, I ask you out there, all of you poetry lovers, um, do you know of a love poem, a mourning poem, like this? Because I sure do not. This is from Hungerfield. He says this, It is possible that all these conditions of us are fixed points on the returning orbit of time and exist eternally. It is no good. Una has died and I am left waiting for death like a leafless tree, waiting for the roots to rot and the trunk to fall. I never thought you would leave me, dear love. I knew you would die sometime. I should die first, but you have died. It is quite natural. Because you loved life, you must die first, and I, who never cared much, live on. Life is cheap these days. We have to compete with Asia. We are cheap as dust, and death is cheap, but not hers. 
It is a common thing. We die, we cease to exist, and our dear lovers fulfill themselves with sorrow and drunkenness, the court at midnight and the cups in the morning. Or they go seeking a second love, but you and I are at least not ridiculous. September again. The gray grass, the gray sea, the ink-black trees with white-bellied night herons in them, brawling in the boughs at dusk, barking like dogs, and the awful loss. It is a year. She has died, and I have lived for a long year on soft, rotten emotions, vain longing and drunken pity, grief and gray ashes. O oh, child of God! It is not that I am lonely for you. I am lonely. I am mutilated, for you were part of me. But men endure that. I am growing old, and my love is gone. No doubt I can live without you, bitterly and well. That's not the cry. My torment is memory, my grief, to have seen the banner and beauty of your brave life dragged in the dust down the dim road to death. To have seen you defeated, you who never despaired, passing through weakness and pain to nothing. It is usual, I believe. I stood by. I believe I never failed you. The contemptible thought, whether I failed or not, I am not the one. I was not dying. Is death bitter, my dearest? It is nothing. It is a silence. But dying can be bitter. In this black year I have thought often of Hungerfield, the man at Horse Creek who fought with death bodily, said the witnesses, throat for throat, fury against fury in the dark, and conquered him. If I had had the courage and the hope, or the pure rage, I should be now death's captive, no doubt, not conqueror. I should be with my dearest in the hollow darkness where nothing hurts. I should not remember your silver-backed hand mirror you asked me for, and sat up in bed to gaze in it, to see your face a little changed. You were still beautiful but not as you'd been a falcon. You said nothing. You sighed and laid down the glass, and I made a dog smile over a tearing heart, saying that you looked well. The lies, the faithless, hopeless, unbelieved lies, while you lay dying. For these reasons, I wish to make verses again to drug memory to make it sleep for a moment, never fear. I shall not forget you until I am with you. The dead indeed forget all things, and when I speak to you it is only play-acting and self-indulgence. You cannot hear me. You do not exist, dearest. The next poem is from the same collection called Hungerfield. This is called De Rerum, Virtut, De Rerum Virtute, and this, uh, that is Latin for On the Nature of Virtue, and the poem is apparently a response to Lucretius, De Rerum Natura, On the Nature of Things. Um, I think by now you know what uh, what is on Jeffers' mind. De Rerum Virtute. Here is the skull of a man. A man's thoughts and emotions have moved under the thin bone vault like clouds, under the blue one. Love and desire and pain. Thunder clouds of wrath and white gales of fear have hung inside here. And sometimes the curious desire of knowing values and purposes and the causes of things has coded like a little observer airplane over the images that filled his mind. It never discovered much, and now all is empty, 
a bone bubble, a blown-out eggshell. That's what it's like. For the egg, too, has a mind, doing what our able chemists will never do, building the body of a hatchling, choosing among the proteins. These for the young wing muscles, these for the great crystalline eyes, these for the flighty nerves and brain, choosing and forming, a limited but superhuman intelligence, prophetic of the future and aware of the past. The hawk's egg will make a hawk, and the serpent's a gliding serpent, but each with a little difference from its ancestors. And slowly, if it works, the race forms a new race. That also is a part of the plan within the egg. I believe the first living cell had echoes of the future in it, and felt direction and the great animals, the deep green forest and the whale's track sea. I believe this globed earth, not all by chance and fortune, brings forth her broods, but feels and chooses. And the galaxies, the firewheel on which we are pinned, the whirlwind of stars in which our sun is one dust grain, one electron, this giant atom of the universe, is not blind force, but fulfills its life and intends its courses. All things are full of God, wind and summer, day and night, war and peace are God. Thus the thing stands, the labor and the games go on. What for? What for? Am I a God that I should know? Men live in peace and happiness. Men live in horror and die howling. Do you think the blithe sun is ignorant, that black waste and beggarly blindness trail him like hounds and will have him at last? He will be strangled among his dead satellites, remembering magnificence. I stand on the cliff at Sovranus Creek mouth, westward beyond the raging water and the bent shoulder of the world, the bitter, futile war in Korea proceeds, like an idiot prophesying. It is too hot in mind for anyone, except God, perhaps, to see beauty in it. Indeed, it is hard to see beauty in any of the acts of man. But that means the acts of a sick microbe on a satellite of a dust grain twirled in a whirlwind in the world of stars. Something may, perhaps, come of him. In any event, he can't last long. Well, I am short of patience since my wife died. And this era of spite and hate-filled half-worlds gets to the bone. I believe that man is too... I believe that man, too, is beautiful. But it is hard to see and wrapped up in falsehoods. Michelangelo and the Greek sculptors how they flattered the race. Homer and Shakespeare, how they flattered the race. One light has left us, the beauty of things, not men. The immense beauty of the world, not the human world. Look, and without imagination, desire nor dream, directly at the mountains and seas. Are they not beautiful? these plunging promontories and the flame-shaped peaks stopping the somber, stupendous glory, the storm-fed ocean. Look at the Lobos rocks off the shore, with foam flying at their flanks and the long sea lions couching on them. Look at the gulls and the cliff wind and the soaring hawk under the cloud stream. But in the sagebrush desert, all one sun-stricken color of dust, or in the reeking tropical rainforest, or in the intolerant north and high thrones of ice, is the earth not beautiful, nor the great skies over the earth. The beauty of things means virtue and value in them. It is, the, it is in the beholder's eye 
Not the world, certainly. It is the human mind's translation of the transhuman intrinsic glory. It means that the world is sound, whatever the sick microbe does. But he, too, is part of it. And just two more poems here. I don't think I need to read the other prose part because we get the gist of his philosophy here. I should say that uh, I even feel like a loner in, in enjoying Jeffers' poetry. If you look at selected poems of Jeffers, if you look at uh, the Library of America anthology that I mentioned earlier, they have 22 poems from Jeffers, and they only, uh, the only one that uh, I have on my list that is also in this anthology there's only one of them, and that is the one that is coming now. Um, even I seem to see, uh, apparently, the wrong ones that people want you to remember. Um, but this is a poem called Vulture. I suppose that Jeffers is the kind of person that you sort of squirrel away and hide for yourself. I'm also trying to keep as little from commenting on these things as possible, especially since the point of this podcast uh, in many ways, is to be the experience of poetry, the experience of hearing it, not dissecting it, um, to only see the need to dissect it long, long after the magnificent experience of it has gone away. This is a poem called Vulture. This is wonderful. This is Robinson Jeffers near the end of his life. Is this from... This is from his collection of last poems, written between 1953 and 1962. Vulture. I had walked since dawn and lay down to rest on a bare hillside above the ocean. I saw through half-shut eyelids a vulture wheeling high up in heaven, and presently it passed again, but lower and nearer, its orbit narrowing. I understood then that I was under inspection. I lay death still and heard the flight feathers whistle above me and make their circle and come nearer. I could see the naked red head between the great wings beak downward, staring. I said, My dear bird, we are wasting time here. These old bones will still work. They are not for you. But how beautiful he'd looked, gliding down on those great sails. How beautiful he looked, veering away in the sea light over the precipice. I tell you solemnly that I was sorry to have disappointed him. To be eaten by that beak and become part of him. To share those wings and those eyes. What a sublime end of one's body. What and in Skyment, what a life after death. And a very short poem here. I think this is the very last poem in the Tim Hunt uh, collected edition. He says, uh, this is called I am 74 years old, and suddenly all my strength, and this is what the poem says, I am 74 years old, and suddenly all my strength has been shed on the wind. I cannot lift stones, nor climb mountains, nor make love. My dearest is dead, nor swim a shark's mile in the blue ocean. It is very unpleasant and humiliating. I believe that it comes to all men unless they die. But I am too tough to die, though I thoroughly desire it. Now, I made a wonderful mistake here. I forgot to read a poem that took place that is earlier in the book. And that will actually be the last one. It's the perfect one to end with. Uh, so what I will do here, I will read this poem and then, just so you can get a sense of how Jeffers sounded, 
um, I will just uh, play an audio recording of him reading his one of his early poems called Natural Music. But for now, for me, this is the last poem I will read of his. And I thank you as always for listening. This is Inscription for a Gravestone. And this is a very good poem to put on your tombstone. Listen to this. I am not dead. I have only become inhuman. That is to say, undressed myself of laughable prides and infirmities. But not as a man undresses to creep into bed, but like an athlete stripping for the race. The delicate ravel of nerves that made me a measurer of certain fictions called good and evil, that made me contract with pain and expand with pleasure. Fussily adjusted like a little electroscope, that's gone, it is true. I never miss it. If the universe does, how easily replaced. But all the rest is heightened, widened, set free. I admired the beauty while I was human. Now I am part of the beauty. I wander in the air, being mostly gas and water, and flow in the ocean. Touch you and Asia at the same moment. Have a hand in the sunrises and the glow of this grass. I left the light precipitate of ashes to earth for a love token. Natural music. The old voice of the ocean, the bird chatter of little rivers. Winter has given them gold for silver to stay in their water and bladed green for brown to line their banks. From different throats intone one language. So I believe if we were strong enough to listen without divisions of desire and terror to the storm of the six nations, the rage of the hunger-smitten cities, those voices also would be found clean as a child, or like some girl's breathing who dances alone by the ocean shore, dreaming of lovers. If you enjoy this episode, please click on the link in the post description where you can learn about different ways of supporting this podcast. You can also support this podcast by going to wordandsilence.com where you can buy copies of my two books of poetry, To the House of the Sun and Bone Antler Stone, as well as a collection of short stories, The Lonely Young and The Lonely Old. And as always, thank you for listening. Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us, the number one, at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.